Well, good morning, everyone. Thank you very much for the introduction. And um, I'm uh, not used to being podium bound, but I, I will do so because of both the audio and the recording. Um, it's a pleasure to be here um, in what a magnificent venue we're in. And um, looking around the room, I think at least there's one other person. I didn't read the dress code, so maybe the tie will come off after lunch. I won't do it now, I won't strip off. Um, let me start by anchoring this talk in um, the way in which I was inculcated into academia in my country of birth, New Zealand. And, and I'm deliberately picking up on our focus here on university, digital university, but the term university. In New Zealand statute, the definition of a university is to be critic and conscience of society. There are actually five definitions. I don't expect five um, goals or purposes of the university. I don't expect you to be able to see all of those there. But the critic and conscience of society role is core to what it means to be an academic in New Zealand statute and the function of a university. So that's kind of my anchoring or framing point of reference. In my own work, um, I really uh, borrowed here a, a metaphor, um, and I'll, I'll show you a, a, a version of this uh, in a minute that links more to my title, but for probably the last 25 years, the, um, if you like, slogan perhaps, some might say, that the light comes through the cracks, really defines my mindset, including the mindset I have in an administrative role. Um, my own university at the moment, trying to challenge traditional measures and mechanisms around promotion. Um, so for me, that's a hallmark of what it means to be an academic in the university of the current, past, but also the future. Um, in the context of this talk, I've just taken that and talked about the light coming through the cracks, through the uh, gaps. And I suppose um, I'm going to be in danger when I saw my abstract uh, when I started then to prepare the slides, I said, did I say I was going to do this? Um, so we'll see how the metaphors work when I mix them in different ways. But before I take that um, metaphor of the light coming through the gaps and putting it into a trans transportation sort of theme, I do want to also make the statement that this is something very deep in my own persona, my own identity as an academic, that to say something is not true without posing alternatives is paradoxically to say that it is true. Um, and so it's very easy to be critical, to take the critique um, side of things, if you like. But posing alternatives is also part of our work. And I hope that in our discussions over the next um, remainder of the period we're here and beyond, we are also start talking about some of the alternative options to the challenges and the powerful forces that work in the context of digital education. But I'm going to, as my abstract said, build on this metaphor of planes, trains and automobiles. Um, in some respects, I could have had a driverless car there, um, but I sort of wonder whether the future of the car itself is something we should be talking about. Um, the steam engine is there because, in many respects, some might argue that the invention of the internet, which is really the transformative thing, is a bit like the invention of the steam engine and the railroads, particularly in North America, and how they went and transformed both the economy but also society more generally. And of course, Erlingus is there to the site based in Dublin. 
Taking a little further, um, I'm sure you've come across this somewhat overused metaphor image. Um, and in many respects, I think it still nonetheless is an accurate reflection of this rhetoric reality gap. People that make these claims about how digital technologies will transform education, whether it be in the schooling sector, higher education, continuing further education, and the actual. But taking that a step further, the gap exists between the state of the um, art versus the state of the actual, and in this case, it might not hold true quite like it used to when I gave talks, but when we go on flights, some of you flew over, um, I'm sure in the last day or so, we're told to buckle up, turn off our devices, that's maybe not quite as it once was, put our faith, if you like, in someone we've never met before, who's steering us where we hope we'll end up. Um, and uh, we're stuck in this metaphor of uh, the art, of the state of the latest technology, and then also to turn them off, if you like. Taking another step is the gap between the near and the far. And in many respects, this field of digital education is a bit like running to catch a fast-moving train. As it whizzes past, all I see is a blur of colours. We've got the present, and at the same time, people are talking about the future. A future that we don't know. We can't predict the future. Um, so these are just some gaps that I want again to anchor this talk in. But before I go any further, there's another gap. There's a time gap here that I've talked about from the near to the far. But I want to take this back a little bit through a little personal journey. See, my family left Ireland in 1876. Fanny was 17, Oliver was 23. They'd been married for three weeks. They left Ireland because effectively they needed to make a better life for themselves. They were peasant farmers. And so when they travelled to New Zealand, they eventually, after 106 days, arrived in New Zealand and they travelled um, almost two days by stagecoach, horse, and then finally walking to the point where Fanny was already pregnant by that stage and the indigenous Māori people saw the first European baby that they'd ever um, in their time because they worked in a very remote farm district. Well, I could give you a longer version of the story, but there are now 850 descendants from Fanny and Oliver. That's me there, 96 years later. Um, and I grew up in a country district where I had no television, no radio, partly because at the time we were so remote and the hills prevented a signal for radio in particular, and television wasn't available. So I had a very, I guess, isolated educational experience, but I think a rich experience in some respects, remembering we're talking about literacy here, an analog experience in some respects. So here I am, growing up in an idyllic country village, I guess you might say in an English sense. Um, that's the whole school there. That's me as a five-year-old starting school. And um, of course, Apologies to those who are not um, into sport in any way, and it's a bit of a sexist metaphor in some respects, or a gendered metaphor, but in the context that I grew up, there was only one sport that you were able to play, rugby. Unfortunately, um, I wasn't really able to aspire to that status, because in the rugby arena, I was really the drawback. Not the fullback, the drawback. 
But I do though remember my very first prize. I remember this because I have a book that came with it. The prize that I got, if you can see that, for general helpfulness. This is the prize you get when there is nothing else that they can find to give you, you get the general helpfulness award. A little another twist to this. You look, you can see closely enough the predicament you're hiding at the signature there, Al Al Brown. The principal, the teacher standing there was my father. <laughs> little incestuous. Um, I wasn't a great scholar. Maybe it's because my father taught me a lot of the time, but um, there's an example of my school record. And you know what counted as literacy in my curriculum? Didn't really mean much to me. I didn't really think much of needing to learn the three R's, if you like. So my education, because I was in, for many respects, the small country school, allowed me to have what I would describe as a maker education a very rich experience-based education. Of course, things like national standards did not exist. Quick aside, the New Zealand government have just abolished national standards in the last 10 days. Well, the legislation is going through to abolish national standards in schools because they failed to do what they said they would. However, because we had no television or radio, some of you may be old enough to remember, there's a cultural dimension to this, when people would come knocking on the door, even in country areas, and they were usually men, so hence the primary source image here, selling encyclopedias or the World Book of Knowledge. How could you, what price could you put on your education? At X amount per month, you can't resist this opportunity. Remember those days? I see a few people shaking their heads who are old enough. So, we didn't have enough money to purchase the encyclopedias of that time because they were thousands, if you remember how they hooked you in on a monthly basis. But I was fortunate because my parents managed to get, at a bargain discount, the Encyclopedia Britannica from the Expo 70 edition, which didn't sell all of the copies that were embossed with Expo 70 on them. So we got them for a knockdown price. So my claim to fame is I sat down to read the Encyclopedia Britannica, all 28 volumes I think it was. I didn't entirely finish them, but I did seriously start to read from cover for my volume one, the Encyclopedia Britannica. I am quite popular when it comes to trivia nights and pubs and so forth, as an aside, if you want to one my team. I guess the serious part for this is, of course now, and it's quite symbolic because I think it was only two years ago the Encyclopedia Britannica stopped being published in a hard copy form, what would we do when we might want encyclopedia type, I'd say information, as distinct from knowledge? We go and Google it, do we not? And typically Wikipedia comes up. I use this slide, it's a bit out of date and I would question the empirical basis of it, but it's good for these talks that Nature, number one ranked journal in science, has found that Wikipedia was as good as the type of information in the Encyclopedia Britannica. And now, as I say, if I wanted to find out about my family history and the Fern Glen when they left in 1876, I can get that information online. So the point opening with this personal account is the future isn't what it used to be. When I was growing up and you saw that opening image of me in my go-kart, if you like, how could I ever imagine that I'd be here in this incredible facility, this very historic university? And I guess that tells you something about education, the transformative potential of education. 
Um, there's probably a lot more to it and a little luck, I suspect, as well. But I'm the first in my family, my immediate family, to have gone to university, and higher education means a lot to me. And so I now want to kind of anchor the rest of what I want to talk about. Three things, and I've got an eye on the time, so we'll whiz through this, because um, the point is to raise questions and have conversation around sort of three elements. Talking about digital futures, I will talk about digital literacies, and then I want to come back to that concept of the digital university. I put plural here. I'm not sure whether it's plural or singular, but we'll, that's a point of discussion. So that's the general roadmap. Um, on the concept of digital literacies, anchored in my own personal experience, I see this as about developing critical mindsets and not that much to do with developing skill sets. But that's a binary, and life doesn't work in a binary, so I'll put a qualifier here. Um, all generalizations are dangerous, including um, what's to come. And I have quite a few binaries, and so just bear in mind I'm doing that deliberately to amplify some of the decision points. That's not how it really is. So without further ado, digital futures. Um, I was away last week, well, since I started, I'll say it. I was away last week in Kuwait, um, not striking that I was in Kuwait, but, but it's just the kind of surreal world we live in. And I was working away in the evening, and CNN was on, and the rocket taking this car up into space, I could hear it going on in the background. Personally, I had no interest in it, and I kind of said to myself, just because we can, why? And I think that's an important question for us. But nonetheless, um, I just want to kind of extend this metaphor of cars and automobiles and take it another step because it triggered me to thinking at the time, some of you again will be old enough to remember Neil Postman's uh, seminal book on teaching as a subversive activity. And what Postman talked about was, if only when the automobile had been first invented, we considered what it may do, the technology, because it does have an impact, Within, without taking a deterministic view here, on our roads, on our cities, on our family relations, on our environment, and so forth. Hence my comment earlier about why we're still thinking and talking about cars as they say. So I think that long-term view is one of the points that I want to leave you with here, and move our perspective beyond the now. And of course there are some, particularly, I might say, from North America, who might say that higher education needs the Uber effect. The business model is out of date. Russell Group universities are stuck in the past. This university is stuck in its tradition. We need some kind of Uber that's going to transform and fundamentally change the business model. Um, and there's literature that kind of goes along this line as well, in many respects. I'm sure some of you or many of you are familiar with these sorts of publications that typically get the headlines. Well, to use Einstein, um, theory is really what shapes our observations. That's something we know about um, the nature of social science, the philosophy of social science. So I want to just give you a taste of different lenses that help us see what's really happening depending on the lens that you choose to adopt. So in some respects, I'm taking the metaphor here of uh, too many metaphors, but of a telescope with that train moving at pace going past. And I want to just talk about some of the different competing perspectives when we're thinking about digital futures. 
So firstly, there's the forces of the knowledge economy, probably the dominant forces of the knowledge economy. I've deliberately chosen a quote here, an older quote, to share with you because this is not new. Um, here we have Bill Clinton effectively saying, it's the economy stupid. Chose, chosen this one because at ECU, where I'm from, we gave Bill Clinton an honorary doctorate last year, which some resulted um, in a little controversy um, I had. But then he did play an important part in the island of Ireland. So um, that's kind of an extreme view in some respects, but I could give, have given you one in which I used last week in Kuwait that came from Donald Trump, saying exactly the same thing. Alternatively, there's a viewpoint, a world viewpoint, or I'll call it the learning society, some might talk about the knowledge society. And here's a quote, I'll just pick out some key words, I'm not sure how clear that is to you, from President Higgins from the Republic of Ireland, where he focuses on the importance of universities, of higher education, promoting inclusion, a participatory culture, addressing the grand challenges poverty, climate change, sustainability, and so on, which I note that Queen's bases its whole education around grand challenges, which is not a new thing for a number of universities. So you could really, in many respects, have two quite different viewpoints here. Having said that, the world, as I said earlier, is not dichotomous, and so let me just give you a little bit more of a lens to look, drill down, see how the colours play out in different ways. In many respects, we fool ourselves if we don't understand that education has always been about reproduction. Even the whole reason that schools were invented as a technology was about reproduction. Reproduction of privilege, um, schools or education acting as a sifting agent for people moving into positions of control and responsibility. We're all familiar with cultural capital. Having said that, at the same time, the reproduction metaphor or the reproduction lens here is not all bad. It's very important that today's globalised society, small countries like Ireland or New Zealand, when we have forces that are culturally presenting particular world viewpoints, that we maintain our own cultural heritage. Um, and so cohesion is very important as well. So the reproduction and education is not in itself a bad thing. That said, most of what we're hearing in some of the literature that I gave you before could be better seen as coming from more like a reschooling perspective. The language of competency education. Somehow technology is progress, and in this case, in a very deterministic sense, an unproblematic sense. Um, and the language of entrepreneurship and increasing market competition. These are all the views of a reschooling. Of course, MOOCs are a very good word, but it's not saying MOOCs are the same. A good example of this, where fundamentally, actually, the education hasn't changed that much from those elite universities that were leading the charge. And the opposite, you could say, anchored in, of course, a long tradition, is the thinking around de-schooling, democratizing, opening up education and now seeing the emergence of new learning pathways, micro-credentials, and so forth. I could give a whole talk on each of these with examples. The only thing I do caution those to position themselves in a radical openness, de-schooling sort of context, is there's a real danger of collaborating with the enemy. 
if you see the forces of the knowledge economy, and particularly the reschooling, as problematic because you play into the hands of opening up the free market and the radical open movement. And then finally, contrasting that with a reconceptualizing discourse, if you like, around social justice, one of the key themes. Lifelong learning, I'll come back to the pillars of learning shortly, the UNESCO pillars of learning and sustainable development. So these are all competing forces, competing viewpoints. And let me just share with you an example of how they are playing out in our conception of digital education in this brief video, if we can get the sound to play out. Have a look at this. Firstly, uh, 
I was a little motivated to write something around digital literacies for two reasons, and one was I came across this lovely little pinwheel a year or so ago from the World Economic Forum, was an example of which kind of stakeholders and groups are having conversations around the future of education, rightly or wrongly. For me, this kind of uh, model, framework, whatever you might call it, looks good, it's flashy, but it just raises serious questions about, is this a match reality? It's not really a popular thing to talk about, validity, uh, it seems, but is this valid? It looks good. And I'm conscious of how people use these frameworks. So I wrote um, something last year, and I had a couple of journal articles that have come out this year. So I invite you to kind of have a quick look at what I've written in this space, because I'm still a work in progress, and I published it. So I'm going to whiz through some of the ideas. But there are tensions here between the idea of literacy as a universal thing, as distinct from literacy, constantly changing and being fluid. Um, the concept of literacy is being decontextualized as distinct from embedded and heavily contextualized. And then also, I guess, um, understanding that literacy in itself might just be literacy. And what does the digital mean? Because what does the word digital actually mean anyway? So I'll just give you an oversight of this very quickly. The concept of literacy, digital literacy, is not new to us. Um, I used to work with Colin Langshark many years ago at my University of New Zealand. Um, and so we know there are many different models and frameworks. I just happened to choose one there. I'll give you an overview. In the Republic of Ireland, and the All the Board Project published a report reviewing some of these frameworks, found over 100 of them. And some of you may be uh, familiar with the New Media Consortium's work, now defunct, but they published two reports in the last 18 months on this concept of digital literacies. They even produced their own nice looking framework, and again, embedded with these tensions, tensions between functional definitions and critical definitions. In the UK, of course, just has been leading in this area, and uh, this is one of the early conceptions of digital literacies. It then became plural, understanding that literacy is a pluralistic thing, and then over time has evolved into talking about digital capabilities. In parallel, in many respects, and not entirely connected, the European Commission has been doing work in this space with the DigiComp framework, um, and the focus, if you like, here is on promoting and encouraging people to participate in society. We all need digital competence citizens. I don't think anyone would, would criticise that or challenge that, but a focus on participating in society. And more work that's come since DigiComp 2.1, which all comes together in this new framework that presents these 21 competencies in five different areas. Do you see what's wrong with this slide as a quick inside? I know I've got the time clock counting down on me. Anything that just stands out for you? This is the European Commission publication. You note the hands, male suit, white. Kind of, it's a great metaphor for me that we haven't really come that far when we're talking about literacies. And in our own case, in the Republic of Ireland, borrowing on just the definition of digital literacies, we've produced a definition of this kind that is molded into the all board framework. I'm not a fan of the all board framework, it doesn't bring me friends, because this definition of fitting someone in society Promoting participation in society doesn't work for me. Um, in fact, with the all board framework, 
part of the reason I'm not a fan is because of colour blind. So I don't actually see the colour lights. That's why I'm hopeless in London with the Met, with the London Underground. I can't follow in that. So ultimately, these frameworks are all interesting. They're good thought pieces to help us think about what digital literacies might be, but do they match digital literacies? And for me, the unevenly distributed future really requires us to understand that the role of educators, as distinct from teachers, is to fundamentally challenge and critique what it is that we want our learners to be able to do with active citizenry. And in fact, just to give you one line, last year, probably not the best example because I can write what's in the media currently, but Oxfam published a report that showed that eight men in North America own 50% of the wealth of the world, of the developing world. That's the world we live in. That's the society that we might want people to fit, not for me. Doug Belgeau is one who wrote, who's produced a framework, even though he says he doesn't like frameworks, which does have the civic dimension. But ultimately, in wrapping up this section, the focus for me needs to be on thinking about literacy, promoting education for all. And I enter as much as possible the work within the Sustainable Development Goals, which we have set as targets for a better future. Last section, two minutes, if I can keep going. Good. This is very quick on digital universities and colleagues. Colleges is a bit of a whistle tour here. So what I want to ask here, I've anchored in sort of two subsections here, the bigger picture. What type of universities do we actually want for the post-digital era? See, I think we're thinking far too short-sighted here. That word digital will disappear quite quickly, I suspect, and something else will replace it. I come to Queen's, I think it was 1845, where your Royal Charter established the university and its purpose. Fortunately, Google let me down and I couldn't see what the purpose of Queen's was written at that time. But in the Republic of Ireland, we do have the Universities Act that talks about the purpose of universities. I've tried to highlight one there about fostering the capability for independent critical thinking. The critical conscience role is not as strong in the Education Act in Ireland. And currently, we are also looking at, and not looking, we're about to establish a new university status. So I ask the question, should universities completely strive to be critics and conscious of society? Because in the UK, you can become a university by going through the uh, a commercial route now, different from the Education Act. For me, ultimately, I just put these things into nice, simple frameworks. Ultimately, I talked about the UNESCO pillars of learning previously, but when I'm asked what digital literacy really means, what literacy means, it's about producing critical thinkers, critical consumers, and critical citizens, which is the theme of my talk to come. And these sorts of questions really fund, raise fundamental uh, issues around what we understand to be the good society, even beyond the debates about the public good. And how we define the good society then helps us understand who pays for education, which is a key issue for us. And because I'm conscious of Colin Doyle or Sherlock Holmes, who says it's a capital mistake to theorise about data, I've got some data that just show that the public good in education is the highest for higher education in any OECD member country, although this is a misleading table from the OECD. So, wrapping up, conclusion. Come back to Fanny and Oliver. And I think about their pioneering spirit, their mindset that took them from one part of the world to somewhere else they had no idea where they were going. And so, three kind of concluding remarks. I think 
for me, what we're talking about here is the need to maintain that kind of spirit, the courage to explore new frontiers. But on the same other hand, understanding that this work that we're engaged in is not mutual, it's not on an independent trajectory. And we have to keep sight of the big ideas. What is it, ultimately, that we're striving to achieve? In my own case, I grapple with this, but the best metaphor I can use is, to finish this off, is it's like building an aircraft on the fly. I could parachute off, but because of that quote I shared at the start, I'm committed to trying to help build this from the inside, and maybe even influencing the pilot of where we're going to end up. So on that note, that's one of the reasons why we'll be hosting the World Conference on Online Learning in Dublin with the advert it's slipped in in 2019, but to do this from the inside. And thank you for uh, giving me a few extra little minutes there um, to wrap things up. So thank you.